0: People around the church are being wowed by God, and I hope that you are. Uh, I hope that you're being wowed by God. If not, I hope it's something that you want. And what I'm talking about is God being so active in your life that on some kind of consistent basis, He amazes you with things that He does for you or perhaps through you. I want your life to be supernatural, not natural. I really want your life to be an adventure, not just a commute. And that's why I'm doing this series entitled The Wow Factor. And together, we're studying the Bible, learning what we can do to be wowed by God. So if everyone is ready, I want us to take the next few moments, and I want us to study the Bible together, okay? Okay. That's what we're going to do. In just a minute, we're going to read a few verses from the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 3. Before we do, let me kind of set the stage and tell you what's happening. Our story is set in ancient Babylon. Most of the citizens of Babylon were pagans, and we've learned by now that means they worshipped a host of false gods. Scattered out in Babylon, there were some Jews. And some of these Jews were God-fearing people that were doing their dead-level best to live a godly life in a pagan society. Now, three of these Jews were Jewish men, and their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had been promoted, and at this time, they were holding high-level positions in the Babylonian government. The king was a dude named Nebuchadnezzar, and one day Nebuchadnezzar had a statue It was 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, made of gold, built out in the plains that were adjacent to Babylon. He put together this red hot band, had them go out and set up to do a concert in proximity to this statue. Then he sent out invitations to everybody who was anybody, everybody of status, power, wealth, and he invited them to come to this concert. And uh, so they all show up and, you know, the, the MC gets up and he said, okay, guys, here's, here's the way it's going to go down. In a minute, our band is going to make some music. And he said, uh, when, they, when you hear the, the band start up, he said, I guess you can see that we've got a, a statue here. I don't know, see how you can miss it. And said, when the band starts playing and you hear the music, we want everybody to bow down and worship this statue. Everybody got that? they're like, yeah, we got that. He said, now, if some of you so choose not to worship the statue, you'll be escorted away and you'll be thrown into a blazing furnace and you will be burned to death. So everybody got that? Everybody clear? Got it. So the band begins to play and it seemed like everyone present got down on their knees and they began to worship this huge statue. Now when the concert was over, some astrologers set up a meeting with Nebuchadnezzar and said, uh, look, uh, man, we just want to get clear on a couple of things. One, was it or was it not a law that everyone today had to bow down and worship the statue when they heard the music? And Nebuchadnezzar's like, well, sure, you know that it was a law. Okay, good, just just want to be clear. And the second thing, if somebody refused to do this, now they were going to be thrown into a blazing furnace of fire, right? King Nebuchadnezzar is like, right, that's exactly what was going to happen to them. And then they said, okay, here's why we're here. Some of the Jews, not all the Jews, but some of the Jews didn't cooperate. As a matter of fact, there were three of them that have high-ranking positions in your government. And uh, they've never served your gods. And I think that was a little sore spot for these guys. And they didn't worship your statue today. And their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why well, do you think Nebuchadnezzar received this? Well, he was furious. He flew into a rage He said, get those guys in my office immediately. The three guys show up. He he tells them what he's been told. And he said, is there any truth to this? Before they can answer, he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you another shot. The band is setting up. They're going to play again. And when you hear them begin to play... You can fall down and, on your knees and you can worship the statue and we're just going to forget everything. But if you refuse, here's the way it's going down. Guys, I'm going to throw you in a blazing furnace. And if I do that, what God could possibly save you from that? I want you to look verse number 16, how these guys respond. Because I think it's amazing. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. Do you understand what they just said to him? We don't don't even need to be talking to you about this. I mean, there's no reason for us to be explaining our behavior to you. You know what they're saying there, Tom? They're saying we answer to a higher authority than you. We're accountable to somebody above you. And really and truly, if we need to discuss this with anybody, we need to be discussing with him, not you, because you are an underling. That's kind of what they would say. Huh? These guys, how would you say this? They had some backbone. They weren't afraid. They were respectful. Look, look what they said in verse number 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God, capital G, the singular God, whom we serve, is able to save us. Uh, he will rescue us from your power. And then they say politely, Your Majesty. Huh? Just to make sure, I'll do respect here. They said, hey, look, you just, regarding the question you ask, what God would be able to save you from such an ordeal? And they said, our God can. Our God can do that. And they said, here's what we believe. We believe that he will. We think that he's going to. Verse number 18 to me is one of the most powerful statements in all the Bible. Look what these dudes said to Nebuchadnezzar. They said, but even if he doesn't. Even if he doesn't deliver us, we want to make it clear to you that we will never serve your gods or worship that big old gold statue that you've set up. What about these guys? They say, our God can, we know that. We believe that he will, but let's let's be clear on this. Even if he doesn't, even if that's the end and we die this horrific death, make sure that you understand this. We would rather burn than bow. How do you think Nebuchadnezzar responded? Do you think he applauded that? Man, you guys have got some guts. The Bible said that his face became distorted with rage. I mean, he popped a cork right there. He turned to his, uh, his, I guess his servants and he told them, you crank the temperature on that furnace up seven times hotter than normal. I don't know how you'd do that back then, if they had a thermostat or just throwing a whole lot more wood. I don't know how you do that. But they did, they got the temperature where they wanted it, and he commanded his strongest guards, come and tie these guys up, and they tied them up in ropes, and and they take them, and they obviously had to open up a furnace door, and these, these guards threw these three Jewish men into the fire. The Bible says the heat was so intense, it killed the guards. And they throw these boys into that fire. And I believe when Nebuchadnezzar got himself a front row seat, just as close as he could get, because he wanted to watch this go down. He wanted, he wanted to be so close. Mike, I believe he wanted to hear him sizzle for the disrespect they had showed him by refusing to do as he had told them to do. And so, from this vantage point, I want you to look what happens in verse number 24. But suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, Didn't we tie up three men? Didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Well, well, yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men. Are you reading, are you reading this? Is, is, you got it up here? I see four men. They are unbound. They are walking around in the fire. They are unharmed. And that fourth one, he looks like a god. Nebuchadnezzar's mind is blown. All of a sudden, a fourth individual has shown up in the fire. He can tell that he's not human, he has this divine presence about him. He's wondering who he is, later refers to him as God's angel. Now, this is my take, and from a lot of the commentators I read, this was their take. This was probably a pre-Bethlehem of Jesus Christ come to the earth in the form of an angel, sent by God to walk into this furnace with these three boys and divinely protect them and ultimately deliver them. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar looked at him and said, something's different about that fourth guy. But his mind was not only blown that there was someone else in there and he looked like a God, and his mind was blown that they were unbound. The fire had burned the ropes off, but they were up walking around, completely unharmed, talking. They're just, you know, I always picture them, you know, just kind of walking around, talking with their hands, laughing, and, you know, kind of like you'd see somebody at a cocktail party. Did you hear how quiet it got? I mentioned a cocktail party at a Baptist church. I was talking about fruit cocktail, of course. And I've always pictured these guys just standing there laughing and talking and, and chatting. They're, ha- they're, they're having a good time. And Nebuchadnezzar, he screams out and he says, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. I love the way he described it. He said, servants of the most high God. Why don't you come on out of there? So out these three guys walk. Nebuchadnezzar runs up to him. His advisors come around him. None of their hair is singed. Their clothes, not charred, burned. I believe when one, of, one of the guys grabbed their robe, took a sniff, said they didn't even smell like smoke. Nebuchadnezzar burst into praise. He starts praising God. Not one of his gods. The God. You know why? He's having a wow moment. This has blown his mind. So he writes out a law. It's spread throughout his kingdom. And this was the law. If anybody ever says one cross word about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, then here's what we're going to do. We're going to pull you limb from limb and turn your houses into rubble. You know what the last thing that is said about these guys in this story? It says that Nebuchadnezzar promoted them again, moved them even higher up, into his government. Now, what do we learn in this story? Pretty simple. People who obey are wowed by God. People who obey are wowed by God. Now, I I preached this sermon just just an hour ago. I'll tell you something I've noticed. The first five sermons, we learn that people who pray are wowed by God. I've I've noticed kind of a response to the sermons. The response was really good. You know why? That's easy. Who can't pray? Who won't pray? But I have noticed that we now, last week, learned that people who obey are wowed by God. And this morning, we're learning the same lesson. And I tell you what I'm sensing. I'm sensing that people are hearing this and going, "E." Really? For God to be involved in my life and to wow me, you mean I've got to cooperate with Him and do the things that He tells me to do or stop doing the things He tells me to stop doing? That's exactly right. And that's tougher than praying. But just as necessary as praying. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they obeyed God. And God wowed them with his protection. The fire did not harm them. He wowed them with his deliverance. Only these three guys expected to walk out of that furnace. And he wowed them with his blessings. Do you think the astrologers, when they left that meeting with Nebuchadnezzar, do you think they said, you know what? I smell a promotion coming for, th- for these three guys because of this? No. They, this, they were wowed by God's blessings. They obeyed God and he wowed them. And so some of you may have looked at this story or listened and you say, Ronnie, how do we know this was an act of obedience? Now, you you know, I shared a story with you last week about a lady and it was clear that God told this lady to do something and she did it. So we know that it was an act of obedience. And you may look at this and go, Ronnie, where in this story do we find God telling these three men not to worship the statue? Oh, remember, these are Jewish men. Now, it's a little stuffy in here to me. Now, I might be on my own here. It's a little stuffy, and I, can, I, 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 see, that, I see that glazed look come on your eye. And, and so, listen, I want you to kind of reach down deep, grab hold, and see if you can pay attention to what I'm saying. It may just be stuffy here, and it may just be hot here because I know what I'm going to be saying in the next few minutes, okay? You say, where in the world did we find God telling them not to do this? These were Jewish men, and they knew the Bible. They were familiar with the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 4, which, by the way, is part of the Ten Commandments. And this is the way it reads... God says, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. Now listen to this. Explicit, clear instructions. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. These men knew what God wanted them to do in this situation because these men knew the Bible. All right, I'm going to call a quick timeout, and we're going to, I'm going to share just a parenthetical thought for you. In other words, you say, what is a parenthetical thought? Uh, most people call it running rabbit. So I'm going to run a rabbit for just a couple of minutes, okay? But there are a couple of quick lessons here I, I can't afford for you to miss. I've got to make sure you know these. Lesson number one, sometimes God's leadership comes from His Holy Spirit to our spirit. And at other times, His instruction or leadership comes straight off the pages of the Bible. Let me explain to you what I'm talking about. When we were saved, the Holy Spirit moved into our bodies so that he could guide us. In order to guide us, the Holy Spirit, and this is what Jesus said, will talk to us. Now, it is highly probable that when the Holy Spirit talks to us, you won't hear his voice with your ears, but you hear his voice in your mind. Stay with me now. When the Spirit of God wants to guide us, he will impress thoughts into our mind. For example, this may have happened to you. Some friend's name just shoots right into your mind, and you hear this voice in your mind go, you ought to pray for them. Does that ever happen to you? You ought to pray for them. You know who that is? That's the Holy Spirit leading you. Maybe you've been out doing something with an unchurched friend, and, and this voice just said into your mind, you ought to invite them to church this Sunday. You know what's going on, don't you? The Spirit of God is leading you. He's guiding you. I believe that in the story we looked at last week, that's exactly the way God instructed the woman that we talked about. However, there are other times where God leads us from the Bible. He uses the Bible to lead us. This book is called a book of instruction, and and page after page is filled with do's, things that we're supposed to do. And I know in our culture I'm not supposed to say what I'm about to say, but also there's page after page of don'ts. Things we're not supposed to do. If we become familiar with this Bible, we will know exactly how God wants us to live. Sometimes God leads us simply from the pages of this book. Listen, man. When it comes to filling out my tax forms, and you know maybe I could be a little deceptive and get back two or three hundred extra dollars, and you know, I'd, but I've got have got to falsify my, my tax return. You know, I don't have to pray. God, are you okay with me lying to the IRS? I need you to lead me on this. So how do you feel about it? Listen, I don't have to do that. You know why? Because God said in the book, thou shalt not lie. So I got that. I don't have to pray about whether I'm going to lie or not. I don't have to pray about, could I steal here, God? Could I steal? I don't have to pray about that. Why? It's in the book. Don't ever have to pray about that. And sometimes God leads us straight from the pages of his book, and I think that's the way that he was leading these men. Now, there's a second lesson in my little rabbit trail here that I'm taking, and that is sometimes obedience requires us to act and do something. Just like the lady we talked about last week. She had to do something in order to obey God. Sometimes obedience requires that we refrain from something. There's something that we shouldn't do in order to obey God. At times, obedience requires that you say yes, and at times, obedience requires that you say no, but the bottom line is this. People who obey are wowed by God. God leads, we obey, God wows us. Seems simple. Rarely is. You say, why? There's almost always something standing in our way that makes obedience difficult, such as, you ask, in this case... The crowd, I think the crowd made obedience difficult. It it couldn't have been easy for these three men to obey God here because everyone else, including a lot of other Jews, were bowing and worshiping the statue. These three men must have felt an incredible amount of pressure just to compromise and blend in rather than obeying and standing out. To obey God, these three men had to overcome the crowd. So with that in mind, I think we've got to fine-tune the lesson we're learning here today. Here's the lesson we've actually learned. People who obey in spite of the crowd are wowed by God. Maybe you're new to following God, and if so, I'm going to let you in on something. God's commands are not always popular. Maybe there's a better way to phrase that. God's commands are seldom popular. At some point, God is going to lead us to do something that it seems like nobody else is doing. Or he's going to lead us to stop something that seems like everybody else is doing. If we obey, don't expect to be applauded by the crowd. When we refuse to compromise and we insist on being obedient, Somebody is going to step up and make us their target. The crowd's going to get upset with us and apply what seems like unbearable pressure in an effort to get us to do, join in with them, go along with us, do what you already know, Ronnie, is wrong. Just do it. To obey God, we'll have to overcome the crowd. And how do you do that? Well, here's one step. Decide once and for all whom you want to please—God or people. These three men didn't gather together and said, "Let's pray about what we ought to do here." They didn't seek counsel or advice. How do you, what do you think we ought to do here? In their conversation with the king, it's obvious to me they had made a decision in advance. We're going to please God no matter whom is displeased. And we're going to obey God no matter what the cost. Obedience for these three men was absolutely non-negotiable. Now eventually we're all going to find ourselves in this place. Where we're either going to please God, or we're going to please people, but we can't possibly please both. Now listen to me. Because if you haven't been there, you will be there. In those situations, the pressure to disobey can be so great that oftentimes we believers fold. And we disobey God. And for that reason, I fear that we're missing out on a lot of wow moments. To overcome the crowd, you've got to make a decision now. Now. Are you going to please? You know something that helps me? I can't say I've always done the right thing, but you know something that helps me? I'd much rather people be mad at me than have God mad at me. And you're going to upset. In those situations, you can't please both. You're going to upset one or the other. When Lynn and I were first married, I worked at a little factory in Pickens, South Carolina in the die-casting division. Some of our machines made parts made of metal. Some of our machines made parts made of plastic. I worked in the department that made the plastic. I was the lab tech. I had to test all the raw materials and keep a record of all my data and my conclusions. I had to test the finished product. I had to troubleshoot what was going on. If, the, if it wasn't working, if the plastic wasn't working well in the machines, I had to diagnose what that was and come up with some fix. We made the plastic that they turned into the housings that, you know for the power craftsman power tools. And so, if you ever had a craftsman power tool that broke in your hands as you were using, and you wonder, who's the jack leg responsible for this? Well, it might have been me. My plant manager was a guy named Walt. He was a chemical engineer, one of the brightest men I've ever met. He had an idea one day. He believed that we could make plastic that was as strong as, if not stronger than the metal we were using, and we could begin to make parts for these power tools out of plastic at a great savings compared to the metal, and if we did, we could really boost the profits that our company was making. So he pitched his idea to the corporate powers that be, And they gave a two thumbs up and said, start your experimental process. However, we have this requirement. We want precise documentation of every experiment you run because when you pitch this idea to us, you've got to prove to us conclusively that we can make these parts satisfactory out of plastic and not metal. So Walt comes to me with a logbook. He says... I'm going to give you formulas, you're going to make the plastic, you're going to test everything, you're going to, you're, you're, going to, and you're going to record every step you take. What you used, how much you used, the sequence you used it in, how long it was mixed, all the test data of the, of the finished product, you got to do that. And every day you're going to fill out that log and you're going to sign your name at the bottom and date it, verifying that this is exactly what happened. And he said, one of these days we're going to make our pitch to corporate and you're going to have all the information they need. I'm a charts and graphs guy. I like details and all that stuff. And so that just fell right into my strengths and we did that. In a few months, we felt like we had the product and we were ready. Walt calls me into his office. He's like, now corporate is coming. Here's the day they're coming. I want to make sure everything is ready. He said, we do have a problem. He said, in the beginning, I promised them that we would take a step in every experiment. And I lied to them. And you know that we haven't taken that step because you've documented everything we've done. And so my concern is that if they don't find that step in your logs, they'll trash the project. And you know what that means to this company. I think there's an easy fix here, Ron. Go get your logs. And under each entry in your handwriting, write in that we took the step. Took the step. Took the step. He said, I'm trusting you to make this happen. Thank you. I didn't say I would. I didn't say I wouldn't. I walked out of his office and I began to pray. I wasn't praying about whether I would or whether I wouldn't. I was praying about how to tell him that I wasn't going to do that. I respected him. He had been so good to me. And he was a very outspoken atheist. And I prayed a simple prayer. God, uh, when do I tell him this and how do I tell him this? And God's answer was quick. He said, you're going to tell him now, and you're just going to tell him the truth. I walked back into his office, sat down. He's all smiles. What is it, Ron? I said, I'm not altering those books. His countenance changed. He looked at me and said, Why not? I said I'm a Christian and you know that and in a lot of circles that doesn't mean anything but it means a lot to me if I alter those books I'm deceiving those men I'm lying to them that crosses my moral boundaries and I don't want to cause you any frustration and I don't want to mess this project up but I'm not doing that. So he stood up. He walked around the desk. He shook my hand and told me how much he admired my integrity. Does anybody believe that? Huh? You're not buying that, are you? His face changed colors. It was such a pretty deep red. Uh, His veins came bulging out of his forehead. His jaw locked up. He raised both hands up in there and clenched both fists like this. And then he came down and he slammed him on the desk. And through gritted teeth, he came over that desk and he pointed his finger in my face and he said, I knew you wouldn't do it. I knew you wouldn't do it. He said, get out of here and let me figure out what I'm going to do. <laughs> I go walking out and I prayed a prayer. It kind of went like this. Well, God, you gave me this job. I guess you can give me another one. You know what? <laughs> You ask, did they fire you? No. Did they reprimand you? No. Let me tell you four things that happened over the next year. Uh, Number one, corporate came. They looked at my logs. We made our pitch, and we got the project. And I don't know how much money we made for that company. Uh, Number two, one day my department manager and my division manager put me in a vehicle... And drove me to Atlanta, Georgia. I told him yesterday, it was like being with the devil and the Antichrist. These were two of the most wicked individuals I ever met. But they took me to Atlanta, Georgia to meet the false prophet, my plant manager, Walt. <laughs> and we went to this big industrial trade show. And we were presented with this award for leading and in innovation in the field of these thermoplastics. And they wanted me there because they felt like I had contributed to this. The third thing that happened in the next year was they promoted me. They made me supervisor over all three shifts in my department, gave me a big, fat pay raise. And Walt was the one who really initiated that, which always amazed me that I could, I could disobey a direct command from my plant manager, and he gave me a promotion. I kind of figure it like this. I think Walt realized he could trust me because a man that wouldn't lie for him probably wasn't going to lie to him. The fourth thing that happened was my brother was married. You say, what's that got to do with it? He invited Walt to the wedding. Walt came to the wedding and, and you know, and at the reception, I'm standing with my dad and my brother and his wife and Walt came up. I introduced him to my father. He shook my father's hand and looked him in the eye and he says, I don't know what you did, but you did something right. These are two of the finest men I've ever known. Finest man I've ever worked with. I had I was in one of those situations I, I couldn't please Walt and God. Wouldn't it have been easy to just go with the flow and take out that book and write in a few words? It was just plastic. It's just plastic. It'd have been so easy, just do that. What's the big deal? You know the big deal? It's wrong. I would have disobeyed God. And so I made a decision. Hey, Walt, I can take you being mad at me, but I can't take him being mad at me. So I obeyed God. That's all I did. I just obeyed God. And you know what God did for me? He wowed me. He wowed me. I tell you all that because i got to tell you this. I know I'm speaking to somebody here this morning, and God's been telling you to stop something for a long time. Well, it's time for you to make a decision. Whom are you going to live to please, God or people? It's time for you not to worry about what people think or what people say or what people are going to do. It's time for you to concern yourself with what God wants. It's time for you to obey God. Because people who obey in spite of the crowd are wowed by God. Let's pray together. I know that there are other people in the room, but for just the next few moments, I want you to imagine it's just you and the Lord. Did I get it right with you? Is there something God's been telling you to turn loose of, let go of, stop? Some aspect of your life and God has been saved for a long time. You need to change that. You need to fix that. But you're so worried about how you would be received, treated, mistreated. If you cooperate. You know, the truth is, God would honor it. If you you stopped whatever He's telling you to stop, if you would do that, God would honor it. Somewhere down the line, I promise you, He will wow you if you take your stand and take it now. So if you can identify anything like that in your life, You know what I want you to say to God? Yes. Yes, God. It's as good as done. Amen. I want to thank you for your patience. I want to thank you for listening to me. Here's what I want you to do. Walk out these doors. and Whatever it is that God is telling you to do. Whatever God has been telling you to stop. Take care of it. Take care of it. Take care of it this week. And you give God time. And you see what he does for you. You going to do that? Good, three. That's good. That's good enough. Y'all are dismissed. Have a great week.